Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name is Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? I am doing all right, getting through the day, surviving pandemic times. Yeah, one day at a time Mm -hmm. for that. Um, You? Feeling about the same. Wacky weather continues uh, since our last episode. We've basically alternated days where it has snowed and days where it's been sunny. And like 10 degrees. Yeah, yeah. Like we've been shifting from minus 2 to plus 20 Celsius every other day for the past week. So migraines galore for me. Yeah, for Sarah. And like as someone who has seasonal affective disorder, like... I don't know what I'm supposed to be feeling anymore. <laughs> uh, You're like um, those two theater masks where like, happy, sad, right. happy, yeah. sad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the pandemic has continued to be an issue in Alberta where we've got... Well into our third wave. Yeah, we got lots of variant cases. Majority is variant. Yeah, um, that has like shot our caseloads up. Um, we are sitting at 30% of Albertans have one dose of a vaccine, 6% have two. Yeah. Uh, we have not yet opened up vaccines to people like under 40. Yeah. So Unless they have a pre-existing condition. Right. So things like just aren't great here, and it's a struggle sometimes. Yeah. And I just want everybody out there listening to know that if you're struggling too, uh, I feel that. I feel you. I'm glad that you can find some time in your day to relax and listen to this show. You know, mm-hmm. if it's whatever helps you kind of zone out while you're doing dishes or what have you. I'm just glad to know that there are so many people who listen and enjoy our show. Mm-hmm. Um, really makes doing the show feel worthwhile. Yes, especially because we have just hit a milestone. Oh, have we? Episode 200, baby. Oh, shoot. I forgot. (laughs) Yes, it is episode 200. Holy smokes. Yeah, you're too far away across the table to high five, but... uh, There we go. We we high fived ourselves. (sighs) (laughs) Which is a lot of people who are in quarantine and isolation have to high five themselves. Well, I think our listeners can also pat themselves on the back. because doing the show is fun and enjoyable and we definitely get something out of it and doing it together. But the fact that people have shared that they also enjoy it, whether that's through retweets, whether that's through the direct messages we get, the emails, the interactions on Tumblr, when we share an episode and we talk about what's going on and, you know, people reply back, all of that kind of helps make this worth it so thank you listeners yeah we love getting comments we love getting feedback we love hearing from you we also just love seeing those download numbers go up and up and up it's just a nice little like here's some serotonin like some like fish flakes in my (laughs) in my pond here right so yeah we we love that we have such a wonderful audience of listeners it really really makes it feel 
worthwhile to be doing the show. And I know that there are quite a lot of listeners who've expressed that like the show has helped them get through the last year, just like something that's like a regular thing that they can look forward to every week, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, 200 episodes. That means there's more episodes of Scream Scene than there are of Star Trek The Next Generation. Oh my god. Well, for our 200th episode, Ben, what are we watching? Well, I wish I could say that we were watching something like Curse of Frankenstein or Horror of Dracula or something like big and monumental, you know, coming up like uh, The Fly or, or something. But we're watching kind of a more small scale movie, uh, something a little more forgotten in the annals of time, perhaps. Ben, there are no small movies. It's the screens that got small. <laughs> I don't think that's how that quote works, but <laughs> I'll take it. Um, that being said, it does star some notable people mm-hmm. and has some interesting things to talk about. So, yes, uh, for this week's episode, we are watching Voodoo Island from 1957, directed by Reginald LeBorg. Awesome. So, this movie is coming to us from Bel Air Productions, which is the company of producer Howard Koch and executive producer Aubrey Schenk. And we've seen a couple movies from them now. Um, They had a big hit with their Universal-style throwback horror movie, The Black Sleep, Mm -hmm. which starred Basil Rathbone, Lon Chaney Jr., Bella Lugosi, and John Carradine, and was directed by Reginald LeBorg, all of whom were veterans of universal horror movies in the 1940s that film had been on a double bill with a uk import uh the quatermass experiment which was released in the u.s as the creeping unknown and was a huge hit so it made sense for them to follow up that success with similar product and to produce both halves of the double feature themselves to maximize profits The bottom half of this follow-up double feature was the Universal-style mummy throwback movie, Pharaoh's Curse, uh, which we covered for last week. Voodoo Island, uh, this week's movie, was the top feature. Uh, And you can tell that by a number of factors. One, it was directed once again by Reginald LeBorg, who'd done The Black Sleep. Uh, Howard Koch, of course, is producing again. Uh, it is also written by Richard Landau, just like Pharaoh's Curse. Uh, also has music by Les Baxter, who we talked about last week. Mm-hmm. Creator of Exotica. That's uh, the music genre, Exotica. <laughs> yes, I don't mean to um, imply. I mean, I don't know what he did on the side or anything, so, but power to him. Voodoo's Island. <laughs> Voodoo's Island. Voodoo Island was shot on location in Hawaii. Nice. Uh, for $150,000. I so, think that's probably like the key for why this is the A picture. Well, like the front half of the this double feature. Another key might be the fact that it starred the one big classic horror movie icon that Coke didn't get for the Black Sleep, Boris Karloff. Nice. So the movie's called Voodoo Island. Um... It's got some voodoo stuff in it. But I, I mean, I would hope so if they're calling it yeah, Voodoo Island. Yeah, but um, it's very, like, loose. This movie's not really trying for authenticity 
Sure. Um, I think a big sign of that is that uh, the island in question here is in the Pacific Ocean. Okay. Uh, but So it might as well be Hawaii. Yes. Yes. It's like a Polynesian island. Okay. Um, and we've talked about voodoo a lot on this show. We've done some episodes where we really have gone in depth. And like my memory, I think, is pretty good. And I don't recall voodoo being Polynesian. But Sarah, can you can you maybe confirm or deny? Um, I can confirm that it is not Polynesian. <laughs> <laughs> Our very first film that covered voodoo and zombies was White Zombie from 1932, and that's episode 32. So in that episode, I go into a lot more detail um, and really go into the history of uh, Haiti uh, specifically. Um, so if you want the full story, check that episode out here. I'm just going to be talking, you know, a little more surface level voodoo as we know it today. And I think in the contemporary times of this film, 1957 is very tied to conceptions of Haitian voodoo specifically, which itself is very intertwined with Haiti's independence and the emancipation of slaves. Voodoo as a religion and spiritual practice existed in Western Africa and therefore was uh, the practice of many people taken from that area to become slaves. In Haiti, which was a Spanish colony at the time, um, slavers would enforce Catholicism on their slaves in an attempt to deculturalize them and make them assimilate a little bit more, um, both as like a way of like, you know... I would imagine the slavers thought that this would be like saving their souls in the same way that like missionaries believe that. Um, but it also works really well to make those slaves no longer feel like an obligation to go back home, have any kind of connection to being mm -hmm. in Africa, that sort of thing. Yeah. It makes it so that like you just feel like, Oh my, I am slave. My identity is slave. It has always been slave. There's nothing for me outside of this existence this role yeah. yeah if you know anything about catholicism you at least know that they have a ton of saints mm -hmm. and there's different days to these saints and you can pray to different saints for different things um and it's not that they are separate gods but they are like a figure that is considered you know prayable to <laughs> <laughs> yeah in a lot of cases as christianity spread throughout europe the Catholic Church developed kind of like a system whereby local deities were often merged with like local saints because a saint is supposed to be like a historical person who mm -hmm. existed and lived. But like the stories of a local deity might get merged with the stories of a local saint so that those pre-Christian traditions would live on, which would help that area assimilate to Christianity more easily, right? It's like, oh, you can still like take pine trees into your house at winter time because that's that's fine, you know, and and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. In voodoo, they have many different spirits and gods, and in order to practice voodoo in secret, um, people would map these spirits and gods onto different saints. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're a slaver 
came in um, and was like, what What are you guys doing in right, here? Sure. They're like, oh, no, we're just praying to St. Augustine. Right. Oh, okay, okay, fine. Sort but of, then as soon as the door closes, then they pray to the actual voodoo person they were going to. Sure. Sort of the same process, just in reverse. Yeah. Right? It's, the, it's the local, quote unquote, religion, like... Finding a way to survive. Yeah, by like adopting a Christian skin rather than the Catholic Church applying a Christian skin to local traditions to make locals swallow it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Over time, voodoo morphed into a very unique version, which is why it's kind of known as like a Creole religion. Mm -hmm. Uh, So much so that Haitian voodoo has differences with voodoo in the American South, such as what you would see in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Like they're similar, but different. So voodoo is finding a way for it to survive by mapping itself onto Catholicism. The other reason why voodoo is so tied to Haitian slaves and their independence is because it was through voodoo that the slaves were able to organize and have um, a feeling of solidarity in order to go against their slavers Hmm. and start to revolt. In fact, um, before any, again, this is surface level, so I'm not going to go into details, but before any kind of revolts or riots, there would be a like voodoo sacrifice for example, to get like good luck um, in going against the slavers. Now, there are a ton of like complex beliefs and practices. Um, so again, surface level. But for the most part, you have a Hungan and a Mambo as leading the congregation, Hungan being a male priest and a Mambo being a woman priest. Um, and they practiced, quote, good magic. It was done for the betterment of the community we're going to sacrifice this animal to get good agriculture this next year to help us like overthrow the slavers that sort of thing on the flip side you also had bokor which were practitioners of bad magic um and this was done in a way of like it, it was it's really interesting in what you read where like the hungan and mambo do magic to help the community whereas the bokor will do magic to help an individual which i right. think is an interesting dichotomy there yeah but in any case the bokor is where we get um the magic that creates zombies there were fears that they could trap souls in jars and then control the dead body from there and then the only way to free that body and for the person to like rest in peace is to break that jar mm-hmm. with zombies Bokor would use herbs and um, venom from pufferfish uh, to create a kind of poison. And once administered, the person would appear dead, and so they would be buried. But then the Bokor digs them out, retrieves them, and this person is in a trance-like state. So they are very susceptible to suggestions, so they will take orders. They might be able to speak, but it would be very simple sentences like yes, no, that sort of thing. Um, they would shamble, they'd be slow. Uh, so kind of what we think of in early zombies. Um, right. Well, because these are zombies. These yeah, are these true are, zombies. These are the true zombies. Yeah. There are real cases of zombification. Yeah. Um, so much so that Hades criminal code actually includes laws about the making of zombies. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what I'll say about voodoo as a whole. But I think it's important to note, like, why is Haitian voodoo specifically 
what people think of with voodoo in pop culture, at yeah. least in 1957. And I think like that, that Bokar black magic sort of stuff is what people think all voodoo is. Right, exactly. Like, you know, when you're thinking of like the sympathetic magic of like a voodoo doll or, or any of the kind of like, you know, curses or hexes. Yeah. And, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it's, it's that, that black magic stuff that you're, you're talking about there. Mm-hmm. We can thank William B. Seabrook and his book from 1929 titled The Magic Island for this. Now, it was a nonfiction book where he went to Haiti to investigate what is voodoo? What are zombies? Are they real or not? Um, and looking more into this. And, you know, this was published in 1929. Seabrook, he was already an established writer. Later on, he would go to other, like, far off places where cannibalism was practiced and, you know, do investigative journalistic pieces on that. With the Magic Island, it was explicitly about, like, do zombies exist and what is this magic? And definitely positioning Haiti as, like, exotic. It was the publication of that book that inspired the making of the 1932 White Zombie. And from there we get zombies in horror movies and pop culture and therefore also voodoo and it's very you know all coming from haiti uh like an exploration of haitian voodoo since white zombie in 1932 we've covered five movies that deal with voodoo and um that that five has a little asterisk next to it even though you, you can't I'm, I'm speaking you can't see an mm. asterisk um after white zombie we had Black Moon from 1934, episode 46, if people want to take a listen. That obviously is a horror movie. Um, and it also is very like tied to the fear of like, oh no, our black slaves are rising against us because yeah. of voodoo. Yeah. So that's a really interesting movie to watch in the context of, you know, what the history of voodoo in Haiti is. After that, we get 1936's Revolt of the Zombies. Now, that movie set in Cambodia. Again, not where voodoo is hmm. practiced, at least as far as I know. And I think that kind of points to the idea of like, oh, voodoo is from this exotic far off place where there's people who are not white. Hmm. Therefore, we can just use that to describe any kind of weird magic in any exotic non-white places. For sure. For sure. And it's also the thing of like applying zombies as like a concept outside of their Haitian voodoo context. Yeah, exactly. Next, we have 1943's I Walked with a Zombie, mm. episode 104. It's also the highest ranking voodoo zombie movie, ranked at number six on the list. Then we have Son of Dracula, which I think is worthwhile mentioning because it's set in like Louisiana. Yeah. Um. So it's like a... like. <laughs> A Cajun voodoo, yes. almost. Yes. Um, but I think it's worthwhile mentioning here. Then 1944's Voodoo Man. Right. Episode 114, um, where voodoo is invoked in the title and maybe with a little bit of the imagery. But for the most part, it's like, you're just doing magic. Like, he wears yeah. a cloak with stars on it. You're just a wizard. Yeah, they're they're. it's about voodoo becoming again like more divorced from haiti and becoming just like a word white people are using for like magic mumbo jumbo mm -hmm. like 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 a specific 
like not just magic, but like a specific kind of like culty, wishy woozy kind of like, yeah, like black magic stuff, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, oh, Bella Lugosi can hypnotize people. That's voodoo. And it's like, eh, no. Yeah. <laughs> As we've covered, that's just Bella Lugosi. <laughs> and then I, I wrote this movie down. And this is why there's like that asterisk there. Because zombie is in the title. Mm. But it's a bait and switch. In 1946, we saw Valley of the Zombies, episode 145. And there's no zombies or anything. There's no valley. There's no valley. It's all like to get you in, to get your butts in the seats. And then the way that they justify it is this mad, if I remember correctly, this mad scientist's thing, like his chemical or whatever the fuck comes from the Valley of the Zombies in far off Africa, wherever they say, but we don't go there. We don't see it. And he, he just has like a messed up face. Yeah. He's, um, if I remember correctly, he's like a science vampire. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Cause he needs like blood and stuff, but in any case, no valleys and no zombies, but I thought it would just be like worth just, you know, mentioning for sure. And it's always worth understanding that, like, there are more movies with voodoo and probably with zombies than we've covered on the list. There's stuff like... Isn't there, like, a zombie island? Yeah. Like, Where, like, a Nazi doctor is making zombies, zombies or to something? fight in World War II. Yeah. Um, there's also, like, Zombies on Broadway, which is a horror comedy. There's There's been a lot of horror comedies with it that we haven't covered. There's been just like adventure movies, mm-hmm. right? Like movies that are more about like, you know, imagine Indiana Jones style stuff of like going into jungles on adventures. And then you have like voodoo and zombie stuff as like flavoring, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's voodoo in like, you know, this is way past our time period, but like the James Bond movie Live and Let Die, right? There's a lot of uses of this stuff once it's spread into pop culture um, that aren't horror movies that we haven't touched on right yeah this is just what we've touched on in the past 200 plus episodes right and now we have voodoo island 1957 so that's like a 10 year jump at least from what we've seen oh you mean from the last time we had a voodoo yes on the show yeah for sure and that sort of speaks to the fact that what coke and shank were making here at bel-air productions were all throwbacks yeah you know we had the black sleep was a very old-fashioned like victorian era mad scientist movie of a type that like hadn't been seen since the 40s uh pharaoh's curse you know no one had done a mommy movie since the 40s so this is still in that same mold Mm -hmm. right the difference here is that again we are seeing voodoo divorced from its context so this movie has zombie-esque stuff going on in it, and this movie has voodoo-esque magic going on in it uh but there's it's not haiti it's just like the native practices of this like made up Pacific Island, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it's, it's tying it to like exotic Island natives, but we're, we're in the wrong ocean. We're in the wrong cultural context, but the people making this movie don't care. (laughs) Yeah. It's not like, like with Val Luton's, I walked with a zombie. You could tell they put a lot of research into that script, into how zombies and voodoo were used in the plot and also depicted. We're not going to get that here. No. Yeah, I think the horror movies that we've seen that are the most authentic in their treatment of voodoo and zombies have been 
the first one, White Zombie, and then Val Luton's I Walked with a Zombie. You could probably argue Black Moon. Oh, sure. It's just that Black Moon's from like a shitty point of view. Yeah. The horror is that your slaves are rising up to give you your just desserts. Yeah. Except that the movie doesn't think of it that way. Yeah. Is the problem. Um, (laughs) So, um, yeah. Voodoo Island. Bit of a throwback here. And as I mentioned, um, the big selling point other than shooting on location in Hawaii uh, is Boris Karloff. I feel like that's how they got Boris Karloff on board. (laughs) Possibly. And Boris Karloff, including him, is something of a throwback. The same way that including Lon Chaney and Basil Rathbone and and those other guys in The Black Sleep was was throwback stuff, right? Uh, We haven't seen Karloff in a while on the show. Uh, The last time we saw Boris Karloff on the show uh, was for Universal International's The Black Castle back in 1952. Now, the year after that, uh, Karloff appeared as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in Universal International's Abbott and Costello Meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, which was the only time that classic Universal did Jekyll and Hyde Mm -hmm. um, because the early attempts were MGM and Paramount. Now, Karloff has actually only appeared in two movies since then. So between 1953 and 1957. Uh, One was an Italian thriller called Il Monstro del Isola in 1954. And the other was an Indian adventure film called Sabaka that same year. Do you think this is by choice that he hasn't worked? Since then, so between 1954 and this point, uh, he's appeared on stage and tv Mm. he's been doing work for like tv anthology dramas right like oh so he has been working just not in films okay he starred in a british detective series called colonel march of scotland yard for a season from 1955 to 1956 he's otherwise been appearing on like american quiz shows and like comedy variety hour type shows um like as himself mm-hmm. just sort of trading off being boris karloff mm-hmm. he was after all 70 years old by this point sure i didn't think of that but he, yeah he his big breakout role of frankenstein came when he was like 30 or 40 right yeah exactly so he's getting up in years and unlike bella lugosi karloff saved money uh, you know, because he didn't have a heroin addiction to support. So Karloff's comfortable. Like, he's not working a lot. And when he is working, he's working in, like, things where it's like, yeah, you come on and you say you're Boris Karloff. And then I, Red Skelton, make some jokes about it. And mm-hmm. ha ha ha. And then you go home. Like, And that's like a one day thing. Yeah. Even for a TV show, it'd be like a week. Yeah. He's doing very, like, easy laid back stuff um, because he's got the money. He's fine. Um, He's been able to kind of coast through the 50s just fine. Um, I don't know if it was a change in that financial situation that led him to start acting in movies again. Um, But this was kind of his comeback. Uh, And then he works kind of fairly regularly for the next little while uh, in film. So I don't know if something changed there financially. But I do know that he was always kind of in a much better financial position than like Lugosi or John Carradine. Um, well, he is. Um, he at least has a daughter, right? Yes, he has a few wives and a daughter. 
So I wonder if this is like university age for her. And he's like, oh, seeing these college tuition bills. Like, oh, shit. Okay, better make a movie. Let's see. She was born when they shot Son of Frankenstein. So I'd be 1939. So yeah, she would be literally... 18 here. Yeah, that's yeah. that's why he's doing this yeah. movie. He wants for to get her a money. car for college, right. wants to help pay for her textbooks. So his return to motion pictures was a three-picture deal that he signed with Bel Air. So uh, this was the first of the three films in his contract, uh, and he was paid $25,000 for this movie uh, off of that $150,000 budget. Wow. So like a good quarter yeah just under yeah that's like what one year of school <laughs> i don't know what tuition was like in the 50s one probably of, way better one year of school now yeah uh, so there are a few interesting names alongside boris karloff in the cast um Elisha cook jr is probably best known for having played the young gunsel wilmer in the famous 1941 version of the maltese falcon uh, Star Trek fans would also know him as Kirk's lawyer from the episode Court Martial. Um, he also appeared in The Big Sleep, The Killing, lots of movies through the 40s and 50s, um, typically film noir, usually as like a heavy or a fall guy or something like that. So he's in this. Another name I will mention is Austrian actor Friedrich von Ledeboer, who is playing a native chief Oh, in this movie, boy. Uh, coming a year after he played the Pacific Islander Queequeg in John Huston's movie version of Moby Dick, which starred Gregory Peck. Okay. So he's, I guess, carved out a niche of playing like Polynesians as an Austrian guy. That's just his thing. I guess. It's but like, Hollywood's like, eh, you're not American. So. <laughs> well, it's like Warner Oland in the 30s who was swedish but made an entire career of playing like asian characters anyways you know there's there's layers to hollywood's racism right like a gross gross onion (laughs) finally in the role of weather station number four radio operator uh which he is uncredited in um because it's a you know you, you only credit like 10 people in the cast in movies of this era, right? Like yeah. we have in his very first movie role of all time, a uh, 29-year-old Adam West. Oh my goodness. Now, Adam West was born William West Anderson. That's right, West Anderson. Oh my God. <laughs> no, that director is Wes. Yes. Not West. Yeah, that's how you can tell the difference. So uh, <laughs> that's how you tell the difference. He was born in Walla Walla, Washington. His father was a farmer and his mother was a retired opera singer. That's an interesting meet cute. She retired from her entertainment career to raise a family uh, after she married this guy. Um, and then uh, young William West Anderson uh, moved to Seattle with his mother at age 15 following his parents' divorce. Sure. After serving in the United States Army as an announcer on the American Forces Network. Announcer. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, on American Forces Network television, West was discharged, you know, after doing his service. Oh, okay. It was. Okay. When you yeah. hear discharge, I imagine like, oh, he did, he did something wrong. No, that's, that would be a dishonorable discharge okay. as opposed to an honorable discharge. Okay. Um, so anyways, after that, uh, he lived in Hawaii. Uh, you know, after getting out of the army, 
He probably was stationed there. And so in Hawaii, he tried to get into the TV business. Uh, and he became the sidekick on a local Hawaii like variety show called the uh, Kini Popo Show. Uh, so Voodoo Island's shooting on location afforded him the chance to be in a movie. Yeah. So that's how he got into this. Um, he would move to Hollywood and change his name to Adam West in 1959. So at this point, he's not even Adam West yet. He's still just William West Anderson. Wow. Yeah. So to maximize the value of the location shooting here, uh, Coke and Shank also shot a very um, out-of-date sort of behind the times kind of also 1940s throwback uh, World War II adventure movie <laughs> called Jungle Heat about Japanese spies trying to turn native Hawaiians against American plantation owners in the lead up to Pearl Harbor. How did that do? I don't know, um, but it shot back to back with Voodoo Island with Coke directing it himself. Oh. You know, just probably because... He also, like, Reginald LeBorg's busy. He's shooting this other movie. Sure. Um, I just find it weird because, like, by 1957, like, you know, America and Japan are, like, getting buddy-buddy as, like, allies. Like, we're really into, like, the post-war stuff. So making, like, a weird yellow peril. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, the, the Japanese, you can't tell them from Hawaiians. They're spies. We can't trust them kind of movie in 1957 is super weird because that's certainly what people were like afraid of in 1942. Mm-hmm. But it's like, what? Not all throwback things are good to do, guys. Yeah, that's sort of, you Some know, things need to be left in the past. Right. Or like, you know, fucking like make a movie about Soviets. It's, it's 1957. Like, yeah. So Voodoo Island was released on a double bill with Pharaoh's Curse through United Artists in February of 1957. And at the time, it received good reviews. Oh. Um, sort of the tone of them all is sort of of the... Um, oh, this is fun. This is... it. It's good for what it is mm. kind of variety of review. Mm-hmm. Like all the reviews are like, yeah, this is some cheap garbage, but like I had fun here. Unlike a lot of the movies that we watch for this show, uh, time has not been kind. And so modern reviews are actually considerably more negative. Uh, This is not a movie that's like improved with age, it seems. Um, It is available on DVD in MGM's Midnight Movies collection uh, as a double feature with the 1959 horror film The Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake. Okay. Um, but it's also on our YouTube playlist. Okay. Well, folks, if you would like to watch along and experience Voodoo Island with us, you can find our YouTube playlist at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Voodoo Island from 1957, directed by Reginald LeBorg. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome 
Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Voodoo Island from 1957, directed by Reginald LeBorg. Ben, what did you think of this picture, this A picture, on our 200th episode? Well, I think I'm going to be alone in this opinion, uh, but I, I, I liked this one. Mm. Um, I agree with the tenor of the contemporary reviews. It's good for what it is. Okay. Um, it It's, I think, about par with Pharaoh's Curse, which I think it has a lot in common with. Yeah, in some interesting ways. What did you think, Sarah? Uh, I did not like this movie. Yeah, that's what I thought. I regret that this is the movie that's on our 200th episode. Oh, no. <laughs> but it is what it is. How about I tell the folks at home what the movie was about? For sure. I mean... If we had done these in the right order, Pharaoh's Curse would have been our 200th episode, which is still, like, not grand. Mm. Well, we, we can get to that discussion. Okay. We open with hotel mogul Howard Carlton begging author and debunker of the supernatural Philip Knight, who is played by Karloff, to investigate this mysterious island where Carlton wants to build a hotel resort. Now, Carlton had previously sent four surveyors to the island to map out where this resort should go, um, but only one of the surveyors returned, and this man, whose name is Mitchell, returned in a trance-like perhaps even a zombie-like state. Yeah, they never use the word zombie in this movie, but, like, the easiest way to understand what's going on with him is he's a zombie. Yeah. A voodoo zombie. Or is he? Right. So, I mean, that's what Knight's here to uh, to ascertain. Um, yeah, Knight uh, has made a living. Um, he has a series of books he has a television show where he debunks supernatural things he has a couple of neat anecdotes of like there was that one time that uh that people were getting scared about some kind of sea creature but it turned out to just be like a creature that was being built for the upcoming like macy's parade (laughs) um and some other fun anecdotes like that and so knight agrees and he sets off And he brings along his assistant, Sarah Adams, which, uh, fun fact, we have a friend named Sarah Adams. Uh, She owns a flower farm out here in southern Alberta uh, called Alberta Girl Acres. Little name drop there. Knight also wants to bring Mitchell back to the island because he seems like perfectly fine physically, but clearly something else is going on and knight is like well let's determine if this is just a hoax because carlton might be trying to drum up like rumors and superstitions in order to get some good publicity for his new resort so i want to bring mitchell along just to kind of test to see if he is actually a zombie and so mitchell and his doctor come along we have our main investor named bernie finch coming along as well and the resort designer claire winters who is gay (laughs) yeah the movie obviously does not say that um in not so many words right it she's coded 
Um, but she's very heavily coded to the point where it's sort of undeniable that like it's on purpose. Yeah. This isn't just like a screenwriter copying coded traits from like other characters accidentally and winding up with like an accidentally gay character. Like she's, she's clearly meant to be a lesbian. Um, just, they can't really talk about it or, or do much with that. Mm -hmm. Now they do experience continual radio and engine trouble as they are heading to the Island. And it's implied that it's from Mitchell. Thanks to the, non-diegetic sound of theremin mm -hmm. playing during these moments. They finally make it to the neighboring island, which is owned by a man named Skyler, Mr. Skyler. Now, he's the one who originally found Mitchell, and he is not happy that Mitchell is back um, because he fully believes that, yeah, that island is cursed. Um, Mitchell has some kind of voodoo curse on him. I don't want him here. But Finch gives him enough money to be quiet about it. Skyler has a hired hand um, named Matthew Gunn, uh, <laughs> who is continually hitting on Adams, which she rebuffs because she's here as a professional assistant, and on Claire, who rebuffs him because she's gay. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Claire is hitting on Adams, who rebuffs her because she's got a job to do. Exactly. Yeah. That night on Skylar's Island, Mitchell escapes in like a mysterious way, like the doc, his doctor, like blacked out or something and, and whatever. So Mitchell escapes and he's making his way down to the docks um, towards the only boat here. And he like he's in this trance state and he starts like crawling on the boat once he gets on and then he dies and so Knight concludes, ah, he was scared to death. <laughs> yeah, he Wrong died. movie, yeah. Karloff. He died in like the same position that Skylar found him when he got back from the, the voodoo island. Um, so, you know, ooh, spooky. Ooh. The next day, um, the team heads down to the docks to use that boat to head to this island. Uh, the doctor is taking Mitchell's body back to, you know, areas where he can do an autopsy, like on the plane, whatever. Um, and when they get to the boat, uh, there is like, like a little like body, John and shock and, um, a bag filled with death notes mm. for each person on the expedition. And everyone's like, Oh fuck. Like, Oh no, we're all going to die. And night is like, no, we're not. This is just, these are just notes. Like this isn't anything and like tosses it in the water. Mm -hmm. He's a complete skeptic. As per usual, they experience engine trouble as they are boating over to the island. Honestly, kind of just to fill time. Um, but they end up <laughs> eventually make it there and they find some of the surveyor's old equipment. Um, we do get uh, a little bit of a... Uh, crossover of uh, monster crabs with a very large crab threatening atoms at one point but it's clearly like either dead or like a fake crab it doesn't matter yeah it's it's just funny to me so they follow the surveyor's old equipment and make it to their old camp 
And this entire time, um, Adams specifically as, you know, the young woman, um, is constantly feeling like nervous, like she's being watched. And that would be because we keep seeing native Polynesians uh, hiding in the trees, watching. Now, some spooky stuff happens off screen. Basically, um, they uh, head back to the boat to get their rations and supplies. And, oh, no, they, they, they've they completely rotted those maggots and everything. So now they're, like, without any kind of supplies. But they're like, well, I, I, we're still here for a couple days. Might as well, like, do the work we're here to do. So Claire, she starts, like, going around to, like, sketch where, you know, her designs for the resort should go. And this entire time she, she has been like, man, I really wish I could like wash this like sweat off my back and, and all this. And she comes across a little lagoon. She goes, perfect. Time to go for a little skinny dip. She dies. <laughs> <laughs> we see that there's like this strange plant in the water. Uh, it kind of looks like kelp and it basically ensnares her and kills her by like uh, constricting her to death. Yeah, it's like a a plant octopus. Like the leaves are like tentacles. Yeah, which uh, weird. Weird. It was uh, clear from the moment Claire pulled out that cigarette holder that uh, she was going to die in this movie. You cannot be gay and live to the end of a movie in 1957. So they discover her and go, oh, shit, like, this is a carnivorous plant. And if there's carnivorous plants of this size in the water, that means that there's carnivorous plants of this size on land. And further, Knight surmises, that means that there's people on here because they would be prey to these, like, human-sized carnivorous plants. Adams is pretty shocked by this and Claire's death. So Gunn kind of brings her back to camp. Gunn's been going after her and he's the worst and calling her things like a machine and he's been negging her. Yeah, exactly. Just like because she's she's literally here to work and she's taking her job seriously and he's like, I bet you've never been in love. Right. You're only you've only ever been in hate. Yeah, like he's doing like, oh, you're you've never felt you're not a real woman because you haven't gotten fucked. Yeah. Um, and it's it's like when she reacts negatively to this, he seems like surprised, which is like hilarious to me. Um, but like it's clear that what he's trying to do is get a, like a rise out of her just to get like any kind of emotional response from her. It's very much it's problematic for sure, but the template they're going off of is they're trying to do the, like, hate you to love you, Han Solo, Princess Leia arc, basically. Yes. Well, since Adams saw Claire die, or at least her dead body, she's like, oh, fuck, like, yeah, I think I need to loosen up, and I think <laughs> uh, maybe we should get together, Gun. What's your real name? Matthew? I'm going to call you Gun. I like Gun better. <laughs> she literally says this. This is true. Um, so they're having this like heart to heart when suddenly a carnivorous plant attacks her by waving at her and kind of like, you know, sort of attacking her or yeah. something. Yeah. It's done poorly. Anyways, they head back to the camp. I think the carnivorous plants 
when they're not moving are well done in the sense that like they they've got like cool designs and like they seem well made it's just that like they don't have a very good way of like making them move they aren't like marionettes or anything yeah it's more like there's like a pa off screen like shaking them and like the tentacles of the various carnivorous plants the the pseudopods like sort of move with the consistency of like swimming pool noodles noodles yeah exactly <laughs> just bonking yeah. our our heroes and that night adams turns to gun and she's like i think i do want to love at that time like you seemed so awful but you you really seem like you've turned your life around in like the day that you haven't been drinking because you threw your bottle away so let's let's be in love and he's like yeah baby let's be in love and then uh they like embrace and fade to black so you know they fucked in the camp yeah to give gun some credit (laughs) he did apologize for all the mean things he said to her while he was drunk sure like he did apologize he has thrown out his liquor he's trying to get his life around also he has ptsd from the war yeah it's a whole thing thing yeah but yeah they fuck yeah they fuck early that next morning finch awakens and he's like oh i'm too hot by this fire and he goes and lays down in like the grass and you know the the best thing to go do on an island with carnivorous plants is to go and lay in the grass closer to the jungle closer to the jungle outside of your camp so he gets attacked by carnivorous plants and he goes he freaks out and runs off into the forest you know what you always want to do yeah on the an camp is right carnivorous there plants. yeah like he's he's it's like the camp's in a clearing yeah. right and everybody's like sleeping around the fire and he has moved away from the fire to the edge of the clearing and then when he's attacked by our carnivorous plant he runs out of the clearing deeper into the jungle yeah which great and he comes across these two polynesian girls and they're playing and like they're playing tag or whatever and then suddenly one of the girls is just swallowed whole <laughs> by a full cabbage it just <laughs> envelops around her and the other girl is like screaming and runs off to go you know tell her parents or whatever finch doesn't do anything he's he just stares in horror at this plant moving as it digests the young girl it's fucked up and he um adopts the trance-like stature that we saw of mitchell yeah so i think they're trying to like imply here that like what's going on is like they were driven mad by the horror of what they had seen like that they're that they're not actually zombies they're hp lovecraft protagonists (laughs) um so that's finch uh the rest of the camp awakens uh to a bunch of native polynesians coming around their camp and rounding them up and taking them to their village where they meet the most austrian chief leader (laughs) you could ever find in hawaii uh, he doesn't even try to not have an Austrian accent. It is ridiculous. He's got like white hair and white eyebrows and like there's just been there's just been no attempt. Like on the one hand, it's slightly less offensive that they didn't put him in like brown face. But on the other hand, it's like, what? Yeah. And he explains that um, we came here to escape basically 
the colonization of the other islands by people like Skylar, as well, it could also be became here to escape the like Pacific War that was going on. In any case, um, there's nowhere else for us to go. We came here to escape your civilization, um, and so we wish to remain secret. And the carnivorous plants are definitely like something we have to watch out for, but they do help protect our secret. And Knight goes, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we'll definitely keep your secret. And we'll just head back to our civilization and leave you alone. And everything will be fine. Uh, and now Knight, you know, Karloff is saying this in a way that's like, I'm saying this, but I'm just trying to get out of here. Yeah, he admits as much later. And Skylar doesn't realize that. <laughs> he goes, what? No, you promised me that we were going to turn this into a resort, and I was going to get all this money, and you, you're promising him all these things, Knight, but you promised me too, and how dare you? I deserve much more than these racial slurs. Yeah, he gets, like, real extreme about it real quick in terms of, like, declaring that, like, these people don't deserve to live. That's an actual thing that he says. It's like, okay, bud, where was this? Hiding all this time. So they all get taken to get tied up. Mm -hmm. um, by this point, Finch has been brought to the camp. And so they see what's happened to Finch. And they're like, oh, fuck. Like, what did you do to him? The next day, Knight wakes up. And they've all been tied together in like a single line. But Skylar is replaced by a Skylar voodoo doll. Mm -hmm. Without anyone like feeling like change of ropes or anything. Uh, and this is when Knight pulls out a pocket knife to cut themselves loose. He didn't think to do this before, just to, doing it now. And uh, he's like, okay, you guys stay here. I'm going to go look for Skylar. These voodoo dolls are great. They had four of them for like the surveyor team and like Mitchell, right? From earlier. They're very adorable. They look well produced. They look like something you'd buy at a gift shop. They... <laughs> Um, yeah, if Carlton ever saw these, he'd be like, can we add these to the resort gift shop? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they look like bobbleheads on but dolls. But like, they're like plushies. They're yeah. like plushy bobbleheads is like the, the proportions of them. Yeah. It would definitely be a thing where like, it, you get your picture taken and then they like silkscreen print that onto the like <laughs> sock that they like put over the like yeah. tube of stuffing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, now that's entrepreneurial spirit then. <laughs> So anyways, uh, Knight goes looking for Skylar and he finds him on uh, this rope bridge, which brought them into the village. And Skylar's um, not like in a trance like state, but he's clearly confused. He, he doesn't really know like how he got here. And, you know, he's like, I'm not on a bridge. What are you talking about? He's clearly not in his right mind. He's like, his eyes are semi-closed. He's talking in like a very like soft like sing-songy kind of way yeah um the way he shot is like super weird too because he's just shot like dead on down the bridge and so it like he's center frame and he's kind of like wobble wobbling around on the bridge and yeah it's just a little it's a little eerie it's a little unnerving skylar thinks he sees like a voodoo doll on the bridge next to him and he freaks out and jumps into the water to his death now that hallucination fades and then Knight sees next to him, like on the ground, 
is Skylar's voodoo doll. And he's like, what? Like, I left this in the tent. Then the chieftain approaches Knight and says, it it was voodoo all along, basically. <laughs> and Knight goes, I, I believe. Like, if you would have asked me yesterday, I wouldn't have believed. But having seen this with my own eyes, I, I believe. And I am shocked and I am scarred for life. Yeah, this doll teleported. Yep. Spooky. And the chieftain goes, well, I think you can now go, is what he says. And so Gunn and Adams leave across the bridge, and then Knight takes Finch across. And that's the end of the movie. Yep. What a uh, bombastic ending. Yeah, it's a very similar problem to Pharaoh's Curse, which also had a very, like, and then the movie ended. Yeah. Kind of ended. We ran out of things to say. Yeah. So you said that you liked this. Tell me what you liked about it. Um, there's some good attempts at eerie stuff throughout here. Um, like the Black Sleep, there's a sense that Reginald LeBorg is like gotten much better at being a horror movie director just due to like 10 more years experience directing in general. Um, like Mitchell, the zombie, he kind of reminds me of the victim of the Quatermass experiment before mm-hmm. he turns into a big slug monster. The idea that like seeing the horrors of the jungle is what drives them this way is very like, as I said, Lovecraftian. Um, all of the kind of like creepy voodoo stuff that Mitchell does in the first like act of the movie is like very well, very well done in terms of like actually trying to make it spooky and scary and unnerving. Like I could imagine like, I could imagine like a kid getting really like weirded out or freaked out by this movie. Like there's the whole thing where they have to stop at the weather station because of plane problems. And like the radio seems connected to Mitchell somehow. And so there's like these creepy radio noises that he like starts getting up and walking around to and stuff. Um, The attempts to make like the Island feel unnerving uh, the voodoo stuff, like with Mitchell dying and then like the chalk outline the next day, um, when they're going through the jungle, like there's just some good attempts to kind of make it spooky, make it eerie. Um, the final encounter with Skylar on the bridge was very creepy to me. I thought that was like very, very creepy. Um, more of like more quiet horror than loud horror, but like that kind of thing where it's just like something a little bit quieter and a little bit subtler always works a lot better with me. Like that feeling of like something is just slightly off is always scarier to me than like something that's like, here's a Paul Blaisdell monster. (laughs) Um, So I quite liked the sense, the sense that they were trying, which is also a sense that I got from Pharaoh's curse. Okay. I did not find this creepy. I did not find this eerie. For example, with the climax of Skylar on the bridge, I was like, why are you here? Like, none of this is really making sense. I guess it was just kind of like, oh, a voodoo doll. Like, am I supposed to be scared? Because there's like a voodoo doll. Am I supposed to be scared about the implications of there being a voodoo doll? When like they weren't following any kind of internal logic about it. Like, this this forest is apparently filled to the brim with <laughs> carnivorous plants, and yet 
throughout the first like half hour of us being on this island, all of these native people are staring at us from the tall, tall grass. Why would they be in there if they were carnivorous plants, Ben? There's definitely, I mean, it's similar to Pharaoh's Curse again, where like nothing about really, there was very little internal logic in that movie as well. There's a feeling here with both movies that there's some good stuff in here that could have gotten better if there was more than like one draft. Like there's a feeling that like, you know, this movie feels to me like it was written one page at a time. Mm-hmm. Right. Where it's like, OK, they get to the island and then the writer's thinking like, OK, well, I got to do the thing where the natives are looking at them from the bushes because that's just a thing that you do. And then it's like, OK, well, now I want like some carnivorous plants to attack them. And then it's like, OK, well, now they're at the native village. So like, what's their deal? And it's like, oh, I can tie the carnivorous plants in with the natives. Like, you know, like as if that's exactly it. Yeah. And like not going back to do a second draft. I think like Pharaoh's Curse there's an attempt to make all the characters in like the party interesting and unique and kind of give them their own thing. Right. Finch is very much like the, like, Hey, come on, we're going to make a lot of money here. You know, I'm just here to make a lot of money. Like here's a bunch of money, have the money. And then like when things start to go bad, he's like, I think we got to get out of here. I'm, I'm just an average Joe, you know? Whereas like Karloff as Philip Knight is kind of this like charming, smug asshole. He's he's Richard Dawkins is basically what he is, right? Like he's like he's like the atheist, the non-believer who's like super smug because like he's never been proven wrong. The movie could have been an interesting character study of him in the way that Pharaoh's Curse could have been an interesting character study of like the mm-hmm. worldwide adventurer character in that movie. Similar to that movie, you know, where the worldwide adventurer had the wife who went on adventures with him, but she really just wanted to be a homemaker and had to learn that lesson over the course of the movie. In this movie, Knight has the assistant, Adams, who goes around the world with him, assisting him with his debunking stuff. And she needs to learn how to become a woman again by like getting the D, right? <laughs> so like getting the D from gun. Right. So there's like some some similar like themes and and arcs being played with here Mm -hmm. but just like pharaoh's curse the stuff with knight they don't get into it enough to really make it work um but everybody's got a little something right everybody's got a little arc everybody's got more to them than just like cardboard but that more is never more than like okay you know on star trek voyager how all the characters are like there's nothing to them. They're very bland, mm-hmm. but theoretically they should be interesting because they each have like probably like a little log line in the writer's Bible saying like, here's their deal. Yeah. And like they have interesting premises and concepts, but they never go anywhere with them. Yeah. So that's a lot like the characters here. Like <laughs> gun is a very, you know that he's going to get the girl by the end of the movie, the second he walks on screen because he's got a square jaw and broad shoulders and a deep voice. Right. And they give him the kind of like acerbic attitude, you know, I don't need anybody. I'm on my own kind of thing that like heroes get in this era a lot. Very Han Solo. And then like Knight starts to needle him through the movie. Like, what's your deal, Gun? Like, I've got everyone else figured out, but what's your deal? And Gun's like, ah, I don't have a deal. And then like takes a swig of his <laughs> whiskey. And like, it's clear that he's an alcoholic. It's clear that something's... Uh, eating away at him. He's got like this Navy captain hat that everybody makes fun of him for. And with just those pieces of the puzzle, any 
reasonable audience would be able to be like, oh, I know what this guy's deal is. I can predict what it's going to be, right? You're, you're like, okay, he was the captain of some ship in World War II, and it went down, and he blames himself for it. We can see that coming. What would make the character interesting is learning the specifics, right? Mm-hmm. What happened to his ship? It went down, and all of his crewmates were slowly eaten by the cold, dark eyes of sharks. Right, yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, what are the specifics here? Why does he blame himself? Like, all of that. But when we get to the point in the movie where it's time for him to give his backstory speech, it's clearly, like, just the first draft, like, I'll go in and and punch this up later. Because it's just him being like, yeah, so I ran a boat in, in the war. And uh, the boat went down and all the men died. And I, 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 I blame myself for that. All the men who died on the boat that I ran. As if like the writer couldn't at that moment remember the word captain. <laughs> and it's like, it's like, yeah, it's very clear that like there should have been a second draft here to like flesh this shit out. I mean, Claire doesn't really get fleshed out. But that's not really the writer's fault. Like, there's... She gets... Honestly, she gets enough stuff there that it makes it enjoyable to watch her be, like, super mean to Gun. She, like, asks for a cigarette. He gives her one, lights it for her, and she's like, great, now fuck off. Yeah. It's, It's great. Yeah, you get just enough from her to figure out what her deal is. She's hitting on adams she's rebuffing gun she's also got like a lot of like things that code her like the cigarette holder that i mentioned earlier she's very like materialistic and like kind of someone who like belongs in like elegant city settings yeah she's older yes and um is not married right uh doesn't have any kids constantly is talking about how she wants a martini the thing is, she's loosely sketched out because um, there's no way that she could have been more filled in. Like, yeah. she gets about as much as, like, the code would allow you to give her. The problem is, like, that works a bit for her because she's a minor supporting character who gets, like, killed by a carnivorous plant, right? I feel like she gets the most sketching Well, it's not so much that. It's that she gets an amount of sketching that's appropriate for her level as a character, sort of Mm. in the hierarchy of characters. Everyone in the script is sketched out about as vaguely as Claire, which doesn't work for, like, the more significant characters. Yeah, that's that's probably what's going on for sure. I feel like this movie... Okay, here's here's two problems, and I guess it's not really the movie's fault, Mm. but I've seen this story before. (laughs) Right. Yeah. In Jurassic Park <laughs> and Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island. Sure. We really can't hold that against this movie. Right. How, how dare it rip off these movies from 40 <laughs> years later. Well, I guess like the reason I bring this up is because I've seen this idea of like, let's go to this island or possible park or tourist place to see what is going on will it work for the resort is there actually something supernatural or sciencey going on let me verify this um i've seen that done well and this movie doesn't even meet that bar of like achieving that story premise sure i think though that like one of the reasons why we 
do this show in chronological order is so that we're judging things in their own context so that we're not saying like, Hey, this movie was bad because it wasn't Jurassic park. Fair. Um, let me, let me put this forward then. mm. I think Pharaoh's curse is better. Okay. See what I, some of the things that I enjoyed about this movie, I enjoyed the location shooting. I think actually being in Hawaii and shooting on location helped a lot. Um, certainly helped Karloff's tan. Yes. Like for a minute, for a minute, I was like, is he supposed to be not white? Right. Is his character supposed to be not white? No, he just got a real good tan. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I think like, I think this movie's better directed. You can tell that they meant for this to be the A picture, I guess is what I'm trying to say when you look at the two of them. That doesn't mean that it's necessarily better, Mm -hmm. you know, because there's plenty of occasions where you can look at like something that is the a picture and something that's the b picture and like the b picture more right um but i liked the location shooting i liked the cast is like good front to back like with the exception of austrian native chief guy who is terrible like the worst he's the worst and listen i can't even i can't even i can't even give it any kind of the normal like leeway leeway that i might give similar shit like this in hollywood movies of the period because they're in hawaii and all the other like non-speaking natives are played by like what looks to be like native hawaiians like they had access to native performers right there on set and they chose to bring in a guy who talks like 1960s mr freeze also 1990s mr freeze i guess uh to like (laughs) And they're like, this, this will, this accent will pass for fucking Polynesian. It's, it's foreign. It's, it, that's real bad. Don't like him. But otherwise, I think the cast is really good. I think they all do a really good job at taking the hints that are in the script and using them to infuse their characters with more than what's on the page. Like Bev Tyler does a really good job playing Adams. Uh, Rhodes Reason is very good at being Matthew Gunn, who really needs to be teamed up with Captain Storm from, from yes, Pharaoh's Yes, that's the spinoff of these two movies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, except that Captain Storm would be like 80 by the time that Matthew Gunn comes around. Yeah, it's like uh, old cop, new cop. Sure. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I think there's a lot to like here. I do think it's fair that you think that Ferris Curse is better because I do think they're very like similar like in quality. Yeah. And I don't feel like Voodoo Island used the fact that they were on location in its favor mm. the way that Ferris Curse used the tomb set in its mm. favor. Sure. I, I hope you don't hate me for saying this, but I can't even... I can barely tell they spent money on this, Ben. Besides being on location and Karloff, the kelp octopus monster in the water had like, and Claire struggling with it, was reminiscent of Bella Lugosi wrestling with the toy octopus. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like anytime that the plants are interacting with the exception of that little girl getting swallowed whole by that plant. Yeah. It's very clear that the actors are like holding it to them and screaming like they're being attacked and it does not do well. No, it's, it's, 
especially because like at the end of the day, the carnivorous plants are like the biggest sort of fear factor here. The little girl getting eaten is super fucked up. Like that's that's wild to me that that's in the movie, to be honest, because it's just like, hey, here's some girls playing. Oh, one of them's dead now. Like wild. I think that it suffers from having a weak ending. And the reason why the ending is weak is honestly because the lead character, Philip Knight, isn't as well developed as he should be. He's Mm -hmm. the most developed character here, but just like the guy in Pharaoh's Curse, like they needed to go a bit deeper with this guy. Um, I think a big problem is that we never get a good enough sense of what he thinks is going on here. Like he's walking around really confident. He's like, every time something happens, he's like, oh yes, just like I thought would happen. And he thinks they're being purposely led deeper into the island, like that at every stage, which turns out to be entirely wrong that everything that everyone else interpreted as being like, hey, I think we should not come to this island were actually things trying to prevent them from coming to this island. Yeah. So he turns out to be like entirely wrong and he's walking around so confident that there's going to be an explanation and his attitude, he never quite says this, but the attitude that he has makes it seem like the way the movie's going to end is he's going to put all the clues together to explain why it was actually Carlton in a rubber mask the entire time, right? Like, Knight thinks he's in an episode of Scooby-Doo, and then it turns out we're actually doing Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island, where, like, the monsters are real because they're real in the direct-to-video movies. Yeah. Um, At least uh, in On Zombie Island, uh, which is Ghost... Cyber Chase and Alien Invaders. Yeah, whereas I think that like a Scooby-Doo story where the monsters are real is like a Superman story where he's an asshole or a Batman story where he kills people. It's sort of missing the point. But that a- doesn't stop people from having Batman sort of kill people. Yeah, it's very true. Um, different discussion for a different time. <laughs> um, the thing is, is like we don't get enough of a good sense of what his theory is. Yeah. And if it was something where he was going to reveal it all at the end, then like, you know, it's sort of the like Sherlock Holmes, Hercule Poirot thing where it's like, I'm not going to tell you what I think until I can lay it all out on the table and get everyone into this train car. Right. But that's not what happens because he gets proven wrong that they weren't supposed to be getting led deeper and voodoo is real. So because he's proven wrong, like his character arc is supposed to be that he like eats some humble pie. And after kind of being this like smug Richard Dawkins asshole, the whole movie, he's like going like, Oh, I guess there really are some things man wasn't meant to know. But like basically the impression we get retrospectively is that like, he had no idea what was going on and was just wandering around the island being like, ah, yes, yes, I know what's happening here in like the hope that he would be proven right because he's proven right all the rest of the time. Um, And so like, it's not enough of a climax. It's not enough. Like if the central arc of the movie is supposed to be this guy learning voodoo's real or whatever, like the thing with Skylar on the bridge Like, you didn't like it. I thought it was creepy. But it's not a good climax. No. The climax should be something magical and voodoo-y happening to Knight himself. Yeah, not just witnessing it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, honestly, like, 
because I didn't feel the spooks or the eeriness or anything like that like you did, this to me felt like a throwback adventure movie. Yeah. And I get the feeling that like they were trying to do a horror adventure movie and leaned a bit too much into the adventure side, especially because uh, right after this, they make that war movie, that throwback war movie. Yeah. So they're like, oh, we know that the throwback horror Black Sleep worked really well so let's try some of these other throwback things not just throwback horror and so they're doing a little bit of a shotgun approach yeah i wanted to talk to you about whether we thought this was horror or adventure um because it definitely has a lot of adventure movie stuff like the second listen the second anyone in like khakis machetes their way through some jungle you're in an adventure movie so like Definitely while I was watching the movie, I was asking that question. The things that felt horror to me, for one thing, you know, I've made it clear that, like, I sort of appreciated the attempts at spooks here. I think they were trying to make a horror movie is the thing. Like, even if it definitely is more of an adventure movie, the reason I can say that I think they were trying, because, like, an adventure movie can have spooky, scary stuff. Yeah, like the 1999 The Mummy. Right, The reason why I think they thought they were making a horror movie comes from two things. One, the score from Les Baxter. Uh, He scores this like it's a horror movie. Like he scores all the parts with the monsters and stuff. Not like this is an exciting action scene, but like, oh, no. Yeah. Um, Yeah. um, Because it's set on a Pacific island. Yeah. He he leans into his exotica style Mm -hmm. genre of music here. It's not as like diverse as what we heard in pharaoh's curse right but he is like doing spooky music for the monster stuff and he's doing spooky music for the zombie stuff he's got that theremin going on so that's one thing and then the other thing is the font for the opening (laughs) credits which is like that kind of like like if this movie was in color those letters would be green like that kind of like the letters are dripping yeah sort of horror movie font Um, so I think they were trying to make a horror movie. That's what they thought they were making. But I do think that it's a horror adventure blend. So the question is, you know, what's the ratio and is it too much adventure to put on the list? Personally, I don't feel that this is horror because for the majority of the film, nothing really built beyond like, oh, to me. And that's like, oh, the... Mitchell's doing something with the radio. Is that going to go anywhere? No. Yeah. Oh, there's a bag of death notes. Oh, <laughs> doesn't go anywhere. Oh, there's people watching from the woods. Oh, doesn't go anywhere. Right. But on the other hand, we've talked about a few times that we can't, we can't declare a movie not horror just because it's not good at being horror. Yeah. But right? I think of like, especially cause this is doing a throwback. If you think about moments of, suspense or really Mm. trying to set that mood Mm -hmm. um and tension this movie is like wall-to-wall sound there's no quiet moments like that where like think of cat people with like the the single clip clops on the pavement um there's no pavement in a jungle but you know there, there was no moments like that it was all just like now this is happening now this is happening now this is happening on the other hand, uh, this movie does do a cheesy jump scare, uh, just like Pharaoh's Curse did. And then the experience of the characters in this movie, I would characterize as being like a survivor's 
experience. Like That's they're true. not walking Finch away. Finch is uh, completely changed. Yes, he's he's traumatized. Um, and nobody was like a hero here. Like Gun doesn't save the day, right? No. They're not. They don't rescue themselves. They don't escape. They don't kill the bad natives. Like the natives are like, cool. You've been frightened so much you'll never come back great you can leave now and that kind of to me suggests that like this is supposed to be scary even if it's not Mm. yeah like these are fair points i like i said i i personally feel like this is more adventure but you do make some really good points so i feel like we could probably rank this um i don't have a range in mind because i i wasn't planning on ranking this fair but I did mention earlier how I feel like Pharaoh's Curse is better. And Pharaoh's Curse is ranked at number 145. So initially, uh, before this conversation, um, I mostly thought this was better than Pharaoh's Curse. So I had a range that was 139 to 146, sort of just giving a bit of wiggle room for it to be not as good as Pharaoh's Curse. Below Pharaoh's Curse is the Neanderthal Man, which I think this is better than. Um, cause I didn't like the Neanderthal man's bad, man. Um, yeah, it's real bad. So I agree with you after having this conversation though, that this should go below Pharaoh's curse. Um, so the question is how far below do we want to put it? So what's immediately below Pharaoh's curse right now is the Neanderthal man, which is a Jekyll and Hyde story where Hyde is a ape rapist, the mummy's ghost where a college student is the reincarnation of an Egyptian princess, the mummy's hand, where they go on an expedition to Egypt and get attacked by a mummy in a tomb, Werewolf of London, which is Jekyll and Hyde, but Hyde is a werewolf, Jekyll and Hyde, which is Jekyll and Hyde, <laughs> but really, really short because it's from 1912, uh, and then there's like some some stuff below that. The mummy's hand is interesting to compare this to because that was definitely like... Here's an adventure movie yeah. that goes into horror. Yeah. Like, it starts very adventure. Yeah. What What do you think about that? Because, like, I don't actually like The Mummy's Hand, <laughs> but I enjoy thinking about The Mummy's Hand in the context of how Universal's conception of mummy movies changes from 32 to 99. And, you know, that movie puts a lot of effort. Uh, the Mummy's Hand puts a lot of effort into, like, oh, look, like, the desert and uh, Egyptian cults and mummies and <laughs> the the like sarcophagus yeah. and all that. The Mummy's Hand is a movie that I think is more of an adventure movie than this is. Um, as you said, it's a movie that starts out very adventure movie and sort of goes into horror towards the end. I think we included it on the list, honestly, because of the fact that like it's a very important Branching link in the chain yeah. of the Mummy series. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, it needs to be ranked on this list, but I think that Voodoo Island is more horror throughout in that, like, honestly, the most horror stuff in Voodoo Island is actually packed towards the, like, start of the movie with all the stuff around Mitchell the zombie. And then they get to the island and the adventure movie stuff happens once we're, you know, chopping through jungle with a machete. Um, and then there's some horror sprinkled throughout once we get to the island but really the strongest horror stuff is all the weird shit with mitchell at the beginning so i honestly think there's more like 
outright horror content in Voodoo Island than The Mummy's Hand, but I agree with you that like it's a very similar horror adventure blend. Mm-hmm. So then what do you think of it compared to The Mummy's Ghost? So The Mummy's Ghost is carrying a lot of baggage by this point. Yes, and it's also got like not a great male-female dynamic. Uh, it's got this like he's supposed to be playing like a college student, but he looks like he's 40 because it's like, Oh yeah. 1944. And he wants to bring her back to his hometown to get married, like meet his family and get married all in one day. Yes. And every time she's like, right. But like, there's a horror movie plot happening around me. He's like, yeah. So we just need to put you in the car and drive you to Brooklyn and get you out of here and marry me. And that'll solve it all. Uh, you know, it's, it's nothing. Don't worry about it. And he kind of gaslights her the whole movie. And then she ends up, her soul goes into the mummy and then the mummy goes into the bog. So he really fucked up and doesn't save her. (laughs) So he really sucks. Um, So I don't really know. It's hard for me to judge. I think I'd rather watch Voodoo Island again just because I enjoy Boris Karloff. That is very fair. Um, Karloff, he's not phoning it in. No. But he's not... He's not bringing the goods either. Yeah, it's not like a black cat situation where no. you're just like, "Holy fuck, what is Karloff doing?" He's like, he's doing stuff, but Karloff's having fun. Karloff's reading this script and being like, "Oh, I know how to deliver the line." He was scared to death, you know. Like he's 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 looking for those juicy lines. He's highlighting them. Yeah. Um, he's he's making his his daughter's college tuition. Like he's right. happy. He's good. I would agree about the mummy's ghost going below, but I really feel like as awful as Neanderthal man is like, it's also still a horror movie. Yeah. And I'm, I was also thinking about like it, not like trying to disguise the fact that he assaults a woman. Yeah. It's one of those like horror movie conundrums where it's like, I don't really like you because you depict some really nasty stuff, but you a horror movie and you your point is to like be disturbing and fucked up. So like in some ways, mm-hmm. the disturbing fucked up stuff is a feature, not a bug. Yeah. I, part of the reason why Neanderthal Man is so low is because some of the like fucked up stuff is something that the movie doesn't even think is fucked up. Right. Like the stuff with... Um, Experimenting on his uh, deaf servant. Yeah. Yeah. Like... It's the movie not engaging with the seriousness of its, like, events, right? It's like, it just wants to move on to the next, like, weird guy in an ape mask thing. It's also so low because that ape mask is fucking trash. It's trash. But I feel like the events are more horrific than the events in Voodoo Island. Right, which are more like, Voodoo Island could be a and d adventure, uh, Neanderthal Man couldn't, and I sure. feel like that makes Neanderthal Man a better horror movie. Yeah. Yeah. So then, coming in beneath the Neanderthal Man, but above The Mummy's Ghost, at the new number 147, is Voodoo Island from 1957, directed by Reginald LeBorg. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to all All 200 200 episodes. episodes.
as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box. You can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Subscribe to the show using our RSS feed. And if you want to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review uh, to help promote the show via algorithm. You can also help promote the show without relying on mathematical constructs uh, by just telling people about it. Tell a friend. Talk us up in your favorite horror discord. Um on Reddit, uh, on Twitter, in, 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 a, in a forum? Do people still have forums? Reddit is the forum, Ben. Okay. Well, it's any... the, like, only forum. <laughs> the, the one forum to rule them all. Tell people about the show if you like it. And if you have the means, head on over to our Patreon to support us financially. At patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get access to regular bonus content. And we are like $5 away from our first Patreon goal, which is $150 a month, at which point we will be making an extra fifth episode each month that covers horror adjacent movies. Yep. So maybe some of these weird zombie voodoo movies that aren't actually horror. Oh my gosh. Ben... Would you let us cover Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island? I think that would be totally fair for a oh horror-adjacent movie. I yes, mean, please. Yeah, I don't know. That movie might just be full-on horror because the monsters are real. No one dies, though. I mean, It's spoilers. for children. Yeah. It's a movie for children. <laughs> well, if you want that, listeners... I do. I want it. Head on over to patreon.com slash podcast and kick in like five bucks. Um, on the $10 level with original horror writing, I also just posted um, the first entry of a new uh, writing series that I'm doing called Gothic Retrospective, where I look back at uh, some of the earliest exposure to gothic tropes and visuals. Um, and so I covered the 93's The Secret Garden. Yeah, so check that out. It's it's a really cool little write-up. So what are we watching next week, Ben? So next week, Sarah, we are watching one of my favorite nihilistic sci-fi horror movies of the 1950s oh um equal sort of feet in the sci-fi and horror camps uh it's from our good friend jack arnold director of various gilman movies um written by richard matheson the uh horror writer who will go on to write like i am legend for instance it's the incredible shrinking man okay I'm very excited. From that title, it does not sound horror. No, it doesn't sound horror from that title. And yet. And yet. Well, for episode 201, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.